All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Mythic Existence. I'm your host, Jack Daly. Today, we are going to be listening to an episode that I recorded for my previous podcast, Beast Lore. And the topic is Pokemon and the mythical creatures that inspired them. I've had a lot going on recently. I have started being a researcher for a YouTube channel called John Solo that focuses on folklore and mythology. So go ahead and check out his videos. He doesn't need me sending you there because he has over a million subscribers but I've been doing a lot of research for that and haven't really quite had the time to do uh, my own research for new episodes, but I figured that it would be another good time to, you know, use some of my old material, and this Pokemon episode is really fascinating, so I hope you have a good time listening to it. Today we are going to be traveling to a land full of powerful creatures, gym leaders, and trainers trying to catch them all. That's right, today's episode is all about Pokemon and the mythical creatures that inspired them. When I started researching for this episode, I had a list of over 20 Pokemon that I wanted to talk about, but as, a, as I began to research, I realized that that would be about a three-hour episode, so this is going to be part one of a multi-part series. There are eight generations of Pokemon in eight different regions, one new region for each generation and I'm going to be covering primarily the legendary Pokemon from the first three generations, Kanto, Johto, and Hoenn. Pokemon has an incredibly complex lore attached to it, and every Pokemon has a fascinating backstory. For many of the episodes so far, a lot of the information I gathered were things I knew for quite a while, but I learned a lot more for this episode than, than I did for any other episode. So buckle up while I take you on a journey through Kanto, Johto, and Hoenn. So, I'm 26 years old, and I kind of grew up in the golden age of Pokemon. Uh, I think that the first cards came out in 1996, and through kind of 1996 through 2000 is when the the first generation was uh, kind of getting its startup, and when people were just, it was an absolute phenomenon at that time. And so ever since then, I've been extremely fascinated and kind of obsessed with Pokemon. Uh, I remember I would used to go to this card store, kind of a comic store. I think it was called the Blue Coyote in my town. Uh, I would try and convince my dad during the weekends to let me go there and maybe get a pack of cards. And I think most Pokemon fans can just remember that nostalgia of opening up a pack, getting it, Not really sure what's going to be inside, but just hoping that maybe you'll get a holographic card or something rare. Maybe you'll open up a Pikachu or a Bulbasaur or something like that. So uh, for a lot of people my age, I think that there's maybe nothing more than uh, nothing more nostalgic than Pokemon. So just being in the Pokemon world kind of takes me back to being a kid and my fascination with it really hasn't gone away since then. Um, I remember I used to play the the Game Boy game uh, on the way to school. I think it was Pokemon Yellow that I used to have. And we would trade cards at recess. I remember one time I actually uh, got in trouble because they had put a ban on bringing the cards to school. And I wasn't typically much of a troublemaker, but that I did bring my trading cards to school. And the teachers found out and they took them away. 
I'm not really sure which cards it was, but hopefully it wasn't a rare. But I still have a lot of the cards that I have from a kid. And just a couple of years ago, I found the box that had been stored away of my at my house full of them. And I can remember going through and finding my holographic Zapdos and my holographic Ninetales and just all the nostalgia that it brought back. And really, my... My familiarity is mainly with the first three generations. I mean, I've uh, I've familiarized myself with with basically all of the regions, but really, you know, those first three are the ones that I'd played the most on Game Boy, especially recently. I I tried to play Pokemon Sun on the DS, but they took away the gyms and a lot of the stuff that I enjoyed about the Pokemon game, so I wasn't really into it. But kind of recently, I've rekindled, rekindled my love for Pokemon a lot. I've been playing Pokemon Go. I was a little bit late for that one, I think. Um, so I'm trying to catch up to everybody, but I've been playing that. I play the card game online every once in a while, and I've been collecting cards every once in a while also. And so, uh, you know, I've been, I'll pick up an Unbroken Bonds pack here and there. Haven't really been getting lucky with my pulls from that set, but, you know, Pokemon, I think, is uh, really showing no signs of slowing down. So this episode, I think, will be extremely fascinating. Honestly, this might be your favorite episode or your least favorite episode, depending on your knowledge and love for Pokemon. But it's just been fascinating to research the mythological creatures that are are these Pokemon are based off of. You know, I mean, they didn't just pull them out of thin air. They really, really did their research. Every Pokemon has some kind of backstory. The regions, the the entire universe is filled filled with uh, just some magnificent lore. So let's start off in the Kanto region. And the first Pokemon I'm going to be talking about is Ninetales. And Ninetales is not a legendary Pokemon, which is going to be pretty much all the other ones I talk about, but that's kind of where I started, and once I got through researching Ninetales, I realized, you know, if I was doing every single Pokemon that this was just going to take way too long, but um, I, I got some really interesting research for Ninetales, and I wanted to include it. So, basically, Ninetales is a fox-like Pokemon. It's characterized by its nine tails that it has. It's got shining white fur, and it seems to be based off of this Japanese folklore creature called the Kitsune. And uh, a lot of these creatures are from Japanese folklore, and quite honestly, I'm not exactly sure if I'm pronouncing the words correctly, but um, yeah, I think it's Kitsune uh, is the pronunciation for this. And I'll give you a brief kind of you know, background of what that Pokemon actually looks like if you're not familiar with it. Also, if, if you don't know what Ninetales looks like, just go ahead and look it up online, and then you'll be able to uh, sort of picture it in your head a little bit easier. So, Ninetales evolves from Vulpix, and Vulpix has six tails and is red. And if you don't know, Pokemon um, oftentimes will evolve from one one Pokemon to another, so Vulpix is the unevolved version of Ninetales once it gets to a certain level. 
it will turn into Ninetales. So uh, Ninetales is said to be very smart and very vengeful. Grabbing one of its many tails could result in a 1,000-year curse. Um, and that actually, that description comes from a card that I have of Ninetales. Uh, I have one of the holographic Ninetales from the original base set. It's an absolutely beautiful card. Uh, it's definitely one of my favorites, but, you know, on the cards they'll have little descriptions of kind of what the Pokemon are, some of their characteristics, and that's what is included on that one. Um, and then I recently pulled a Ninetales from, uh, I can't remember what pack it was, I think it was either Unbroken Bonds or Tag Team, but it says on there that it is vindictive and relentless by nature, and those who cross it even once will be cursed for a thousand years along with their descendants. So those are kind of the main things about the Ninetales is that um, Ninetales is supposedly, uh, you know, there's, there's things that are involved with if you do anything to its tails, it's going to bring kind of a curse to you. And a lot of the, the main things that are associated with Ninetales are very similar to the Kitsune. So I'm going to go ahead and get into the folklore of the Kitsune, and you'll be able to kind of, you know, see how aligned they really are. So Kitsune are said to be shape-shifting spirits that are able to disguise themselves as a human, or they can also inhabit a human host. Oftentimes, they take the form of an elegant young woman or a wise old priest when they're shape-shifting, uh, sometimes they can be troublemakers, and they can take shape of humans that they've seen before. They look very similar to normal foxes, except for their tails and their color. So they have nine tails, and they have that uh, sort of shining white color, which is also how nine tails are. Uh, nine, t- nine tails is. And Kitsune, it's said that they grow an extra tail for a hundred years. Every 100 years they live, they grow an extra tail. Um, and once they get nine tails, it's said that they get infinite wisdom and godlike power. And it's at that point when their fur turns a golden white. And uh, it's said that once they reach their 100th birthday, that's when they can begin shape-shifting. Powerful Kitsune can take other shapes such as impossibly tall trees or second moons in the sky. And also, the, the shape-shifting aspect that is not, not something that's present in Ninetales, the Pokemon, it's not able to shape-shift, but it's very similar in a, a number of other ways. And then, so also, the Kitsune, uh, their identity is given away because they always have their Hoshi no Tama with them, which is a glowing ball or an iridescent gem. And it's said that this ball contains their soul, and if they lose it, they'll die. And while they're humans, they carry around this as an amulet, and while they're a fox, they'll carry it around in their mouth or in their tail. And it's said that there's two types of uh, the Kitsune, which is the Zenko and the Yako. And the Zenko are good, and they're said to serve the goddess Inari, who is the goddess of rice and prosperity. And the Zenko, they might bring messages to rulers, or they might be guardians of households. 
which will bring uh, health and happiness to the people of the household. And then the Yako are bad, and they can be destructive. They are known to ruin reputations, they steal, they lure travelers into deadly traps, and they usually do it to arrogant or innocent people. And it's also interesting that Kitsune are only limited by their own imaginations. So the more imaginative a Kitsune is, the more it's able to shapeshift and kind of pull off elaborate you know, plans or uh, kind of little troublemaking schemes that they've come up with. And when they shapeshift, uh, they, well, they can shapeshift, but they can also transform the world around them. So they're not just limited to uh, self-transformation. They also have the ability to mold the earth and the, round, the world around them. And it's also said that they have psychic powers and that they can enter into dreams. Some of them can fly. Some breathe fire and some control the weathers while others can see the future. So that's just a, a little start off for you. Um, I think the correspondences between the Kitsune and Ninetales makes it pretty apparent that they're both uh, interrelated and that Ninetales is based off of the Kitsune. But that's going to be the only non-legendary Pokemon that we cover for today. And now I'm going to get into the legendary Pokemon of the Kanto region. So basically in every generation of Pokemon, there will be a certain amount of the Pokemon that are considered legendary. And basically a legendary Pokemon is much more powerful than the average one. Usually they're involved with some kind of um, like creation myth or some kind of myth that's very, very important to the region. And uh, several of the uh, legendary Pokemon of the Kanto region are the legendary bird trio, which are Zapdos, Moltres, and Articuno. So I'm going to cover them. I really didn't f- find too much interesting information about Mew and Mewtwo, who are... Uh, the two other legendary Pokemon from the first generation. But I'll go ahead and cover the bird trio, and we'll start off with Zapdos. So Zapdos has always been one of my favorite Pokemon. That's another one that I had the legendary card, or not the legendary, I had the holographic card from it when I was a young kid, and I still have it. Um, I also had the non-holographic rare card of Zapdos, but I... uh, I tried to customize it, and I turned it into, uh, I called it Zapdos Shocks, and I still have the card, and you can see I wrote it in pen, and I gave it, uh, I think, 880 hit points and 440 damage for its moves, so I, I tried to turn it into, um, you know, something more powerful than it already is, even though it's very powerful. I ruined the value of the card, but uh, I think I kind of bolstered the nostalgic value of it in doing so. But basically, Zapdos is a giant yellow bird, and it is supposedly based off of the Native American Thunderbird. So some of the lore involved with Zapdos itself, it said that it has the ability to summon lightning from its wings, 
Um, and many tr- many different tribes in the Americas have uh, Thunderbirds, the Lakota, um, the Ojibwe. I'm going to go into a, several of them and sort of their beliefs about the Thunderbird. Um, but it's said that Zapdos is the spirit of uh, thunder, basically, and that it has the ability to create thunder by flapping its wings... It said that it appears only during thunderstorms and that it lives amongst the thunderclouds and it can actually gain power from being struck by lightning. And in the, uh, the first generation of the, the, the Game Boy games or the DS games, it is found in the power plant. Um, I kind of have a pretty clear memory of actually ca- catching Zapdos on the Game Boy in the power plant. And uh, the card that I have for it, well, I have two of them, but one description it has is that Zapdos is a legendary bird Pokemon said to appear from clouds while wielding enormous lightning bolts. And it's also the other card that I have that I customize says that Zapdos is a legendary Thunderbird Pokemon whose anger is said to cause storms. And some say it has lived above the clouds for thousands of years. And also, oftentimes with these legendary Pokemon, they have extremely live, long lifespans. Uh, it's actually, I don't think, really clear oftentimes if a Pokemon actually dies. I don't, that's kind of morbid, don't really get into that. But yeah, supposedly it's lived in the clouds for thousands of years. And then to get into sort of the um, folklore about the Thunderbird... Thunderbirds are generally said to be protectors, but that they punish people of low moral integrity. So that's actually kind of similar to the, uh, the Kitsune. Some people think that Thunderbirds are symbolic and that they explain natural w- weather phenomena. But some think that they are actually remnants of pterodactyls. That would be uh, an explanation for from a cryptozoologist, perhaps, about the actual, you know origin of a thunderbird um thunderbirds are said to be able to carry a whale in their talons so if you can imagine that is a gigantic bird and also some say that thunderbirds can shapeshift into a human form and they do this by removing their feathers so again there's shapeshifting in a human form another kind of crossover with the with the kitsune and you know those are kind of common things that are oftentimes connected with mythological creatures. So to give you some, um, some of the folklore from specific uh, native tribes about the Thunderbird, uh, the Ojibwe say that the Thunderbird was created in order to protect humans from evil underwater spirits. The Winnebago uh, say that the Thunderbird has the ability to grant people their own abilities. The, th- the Sioux say that the Thunderbird is a summer creature and that it's the opposing force of the White Owl, which is the personification of winter. Algonquins say that the Thunderbird rules the upper world and that the great horned serpent protects the underworld. So that's, a, that's kind of similar to the Ojibwe also. And the Shawnee say that the Thunderbird will appear as a boy and that it speaks backwards. So that's a way to sort of identify um, if you have a Thunderbird amongst you. 
Okay, let's move on to Moltres, who is another one of the legendary bird trio. And you'll see that uh, the three legendary birds are Articuno, Zapdos, and Moltres. So it's Uno, Dos, Trace, three of them. Um, their name. Also, if you look into how these creatures are, or how the Pokemon are named, you'll also dig up pretty interesting etymologies, which add another level of to the meaning of what there are. So, Moltres is a giant red bird, and maybe by the word molt and its name, you can figure out that it's associated with fire. And Moltres is based on legends of firebirds. Uh, Moltres has fiery plumage. Uh, Plumage are basically just the uh, feathers on its wings. It's said to shed embers with every flap of its wings. It heals itself by dipping itself into the magma of an active volcano uh, and that it will migrate to the south with the coming of spring. You can catch Moltres on top of Mount Ember on Fire Red, and I actually recently pulled a non-holographic Moltres card, the first one that I've ever had, and that card says that it's one of the legendary bird Pokemon, and it is said that its appearance indicates the coming of spring. So again, uh, Zapdos, at least the Firebird, is associated with summer, but Moltres is associated with spring, so there's an interesting sort of seasonal uh, correspondence there, even though there's four seasons and only three legendary birds. So it seems that Moltres is kind of an amalgamation of two different types of firebirds. The first one is the Slavic firebird, and some kind of beliefs about the the firebird of the Slavs is that its feathers don't stop to glow if they're removed. And it brings blessings. Uh, well, it, that it's a blessing to see it, but it brings doom to its captor. So if you capture it, it will, it will doom you. And it's also said to be able to see the future, which that's another thing that the Kitsune were said to be able to do. And then the phoenix, of course, is born from ashes, and that's kind of similar to... Moltres healing itself by dipping its wings into the magma of an active volcano. I'll get into a little bit more of the phoenix later on in the show, but definitely Moltres seems to be kind of a mixture of the firebird of the Slavs and of the phoenix. Okay, the third legendary bird from the first region is Articuno. And Articuno is a giant blue bird and it's basically an ice bird and it seems to be based off of the Simurg which is a giant arctic bird from Persian mythology Um, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly Simurg Simurg S-I-M-U-R-G-H but I'm just going to call it the Simurg and uh, Articuno has wings that are made of ice it's said that it chills the atmosphere around it when it flaps its wings and it makes snowfall It appears to doomed travelers in icy regions. Sometimes it aids travelers and guides them to safety. It lives in cold, isolated locations, and it can be caught on Cinnabar Island in uh, the the Game Boy game. And I actually don't have an Articuno card. That's uh, 
one of the one of the legendary creatures that I'm personally still chasing after. But uh, to give you some of the folklore about the Simurg, uh, it's said to have the size of 30 birds. So once again, that's an absolutely gigantic creature. Some say that it's a symbol of the union between the earth and the sky. Its feathers will heal deep wounds with a touch. They also purify the land and water and bring fertility. And they are said to live in the Gaukarina, which is the all-healing tree of knowledge. So it's kind of a healing creature. Um, and it's also just basically it's an Arctic bird. And that's the main correspondence between the two of them. Okay, let's move on to the Johto region. So I'm going to give you kind of the the backstory of the the kind of myth that dominates the Johto region and all of the legendary Pokemon from this region that I'm going to be talking about are sort of tied into this myth. So in Ecrutique City, there used to be a brass tower which burned down. And it's now called the Burn Tower. The legendary Pokemon Lugia used to preach there, but it, le- uh, it fled to the Whirl Islands. And then Ho-Oh lived in a bell tower nearby, and it fled to find a pure-hearted trainer after, after, the, uh, after the brass tower burned down. But three Pokemon died in the tower. Ho-Oh returned to revive these three Pokemon, which were Entei, Raikou, and Suicune. So I'm going to start off telling you about Raikou. And Raikou is kind of like a thunder tiger. Basically, that's, the, that's kind of how I would describe it. And Raikou is supposedly based off of Raiju, which is a thunder demon of Japanese lore. So there's the thunder correspondence and the name. They're very, very similar. And for Raikou, uh, it is said to represent the lightning that struck the brass tower and caused it to burn down. Raikou has the speed of lightning, its roar echoes the sound of thunder, and rain clouds it carries release thunderbolts. And then Raiju has a body composed of lightning, sort of similarly. It can take the form of a tiger, a monkey, or a blue wolf, and my research indicates that Raikou is the tiger form of the, the Raiju, but that Manectric, or Ma- Manectric is the wolf form of Raiju. And I don't think we have a monkey form yet. Um, so, you know, maybe we'll see if there's, there's a monkey form of the Raiju still to come. The body structure of Raikou is pretty much based off of the saber-toothed tiger, it has a color and pattern that resembles the Bengal tiger, and it has fur and a face that resembles the Siberian tiger. So oftentimes there'll be kind of an amalgamation of sort of mythological creatures, but then also, you know, biological entities to sort of give its, its recognizability. And Raikou has a cloak on its back, that has the image of a cumulonimbus cloud, which is a cloud that's often associated with thunderstorms. 
And I actually have a couple of holographic Raikou cards, and the cards say that the rain clouds, the rain clouds that it carries, let it fire thunderbolts at will. They say that it descended with lightning. And then to give you a little bit of more information about the Raiju itself, Raiju is supposedly the companion of Raijin, who is the Shinto god of lightning. Raiju is calm and harmless, but it becomes agitated during thunderstorms. It jumps from tree to tree, and evidence can be seen in deep gouges in the trees of Raiju's presence. It will pounce on people under trees during storms and will take cover in unprotected houses. It can't pass through a mosquito net, so houses are often guarded with mosquito nets. And it loves to sleep in humans, in humans' navels, so it is best to sleep face down in a thunderstorm. Okay, so that's the first of the legendary creatures from the Johto region. Legendary Pokemon, that is. And next is Entei. So, Entei is a lion-like creature, and this is another one of my favorite Pokemon. Uh, Entei is said to represent the flames that burned the brass tower down. Its flames are hotter than volcano magma. When it roars, a volcano erupts, and it is supposedly based off of the Chinese guardian lions, which are called the Foo Dog. So, Foo Dogs basically serve as guardians to Buddhist temples, and there's a there's a pretty uh, pretty good similarity in in form and kind of look between Entei and the Foo Dog. But Entei looks like a lion with a mane. It also its face kind of resembles a mastiff or a Saint Bernard, but it also looks like a Balinese lion spirit called the Barong. And the Baron is the guardian spirit who kills Rangda to maintain the balance of good and evil. And Rangda is an evil witch. So it's kind of a mixture between the Baron and the Fudog on the uh, mythological plane, but then kind of a, a lion and a mastiff or a Saint Bernard on the physical plane. And to give you more information about the Fudogs, the, the Fudogs are... Like I said, they're guardians of Buddhist temples, but some of, one of their most famous iterations is as the guardians of the Forbidden City. And it's really interesting from the, the things that I like to study, the Foo Dogs stand on top of three-dimensional flowers of life. And the flower of life is basically a, a sacred geometrical form. It's basically... Uh, the geometrical form of the structure of reality. So the the food dogs are th- are thought to be very kind of divine creatures, and that sort of plays into Entei being a legendary Pokemon. And I also have an Entei card. Uh, I have a Black Star promo from a movie that came out a while ago. I can't remember exactly which one it was, but uh, it, the card says that volcanoes erupt when it barks. And it's, it's unable to restrain its extreme power, and it races headlong around the land. Okay, let's move on to the third of the uh, sort of 
the dog feline trio of the legendary Pokemons of this region, which is Suicune. Suicune is a large blue feline, and it is said to be the rain that quenches the flames of the brass tower. It's a reincarnation of the north wind, and it embodies the compassion of pure spring water. It has the ability to purify dirty water, and it seems to be based off of the Quillin. And again, I'm not sure if I'm getting that word right, but it's Q-I-L-I-N, Quillin, I think. And the Quillin has traits of dragons, unicorn, deer, and big cats. It kind of is a chimerical creature, but it looks very similar to Suicune. And uh, they are known for arriving at the imminent passing or arrival of a great sage or ruler. And they are said to be very good omens. And the Quillin are also said to have uh, be very sort of unique. No two of them look exactly the same. And each, each has unique embellishments. Oftentimes they're horned. They have a body of a deer, the tail of an ox the face like a dragon, and hooves of a horse. And their appearance will also coincide with the imminent death or birth of a ruler. They are said to mingle with the gods in heaven, and they can distinguish between good and bad people. They have the gift of prophecy, and they can provide transfer, transformation, or sorry, transportation to and from heaven. But they might attack evildoers. So, again, that's kind of similar to the Kitsune, uh, Gift of Prophecy or Foresight and attacking, attacking evildoers, being able to tell between good and bad people. Okay, so let's move on to the, the two legendary birds of this region, which are Ho-Oh and Lugia. Um, or Lugia, I guess is the correct pronunciation. Okay, so to start off with Ho-Oh, Ho-Oh is another giant red bird, and this seems to be based off of the Chinese phoenix called Feng Wang. And Ho-Oh is one of the, you know, like I said, two legendary Pokemon from Johto. It has prismatic wings that leave a rainbow behind it. It has the power to resurrect the dead. Those who witness Ho-Oh are granted eternal happiness and it searches for a trainer with a pure heart. Recently, there was uh, another Pokemon movie that came out that centered around Ho-Oh. Uh, Ash basically was the, the trainer with a good heart, and he ends up being basically resurrected by Ho-Oh. So, I forget, again, I forget the name of what which one that movie was, but I watched it on Netflix recently, and it's really, really good. And... I bought uh, the Shining Legends Elite Trainer Box recently, and with that, you get a Shining ho card. And that's one of the reasons why I bought that box. And that card says that a legend says that its body glows in seven colors, and a rainbow is said to form behind it when it flies. And that legendary uh, trainer box, or the Elite Trainer Box Shining Legends, uh, it it was actually, I think, a pretty good purchase. It was $40, you get 10 packs, you get a Ho-Oh card, and I pulled some really good uh, cards from the packs. That's where I got the Raikus. 
I got two Zoroark GXs. Um, so I think that that was a pretty good purchase, actually. But to go into Feng Wang, uh, this is basically the, the Chinese phoenix, and its appearance is said to foretell harmony at the ascent of the new th- emperor or of the throne itself. And like Quilin, it's said to signify male and female elements, or yin and yang. It is actually mentioned in the Shang Dynasty, or sorry, the Shang Dynasty, in Oracle Bone inscriptions. And if you don't know, the Oracle Bones of Japan are very interesting. It's some of the, the oldest written records, which they were basically inscribed on bones and they were used for divin- divination purposes so uh, Feng Wang appears on those oracle bones and it, it is said that it appeared before the death of the yellow emperor Wang Di who is uh, one of the the most kind of legendary emperors of uh, of Japan of sorry I was saying China of I was saying Japan but it was of China my mistake and um, it is associated with wealth and prosperity during the Zhou dynasty and then Lugia it, uh, it kind of resembles a dragon but it also kind of looks like a plesiosaur and a bird so if you listen to the the Loch Ness Monster episode we've got the plesiosaur coming up again and Lugia might be based on Ryujin who is a dragon who lives on ocean floors and is the Shinto god of the sea. And basically, uh, you know, this is kind of like an appar- The Lugia and Ho'oh is sort of an iteration of the dragon phoenix, yin and yang, uh, male-female, water-fire duality that is present in Eastern myths. And... Uh, so let's see Lugia is kind of like also um, like a heron or a beluga whale and um, it's said that it can control the weather that it gives rise and can also calm storms it's said that it has wings powerful enough to tear down cliffs and that it can spawn storms lasting 40 days but because of its great power, it tends to isolate itself. And the Ryujin is a dragon king or a sea god and also the master of serpents. It's responsible for tides. It has useful knowledge of medicine. And um, it's it said that snakes are the messengers of Ryujin. And the snakes were often associated with death and thunder and might explain the role of it being the bringer of rain and storms. It appears in dreams. It carries around a magic round jewel, and it can either be a sinister force or a kindly ruler, and supposedly it stole the jewel of the Fujiwara clan. Okay, so that's it for uh, the Johto region. Now let's move on to the third and final region, which is Hoenn. So in Hoenn, there is a trio of legendary Pokemon called the the Weather Trio, which are Groudon, Kyogre, and Rayquaza. So, Aho and Lo- Aho, oh, sorry, 
Sorry, Hoenn legend says that thousands of years ago, during the primal age, the world was overflowing with natural energy. Groudon and Kyogre fought over the energy in endless endless clashes, but people couldn't do anything. And then Rayquaza intervened and overwhelmed the Pokemon and peace returned. Then a thousand years later, a meteoroid hit the earth, which caused cracks in the ground and unleashed natural energy, which caused Kyogre and Groudon to fight again. And humans had a collective memory of how Rayquaza saved the race, and that memory combined with the power of the meteorite allowed Rayquaza to mega evolve and for the fighting to be stopped. Uh, And then these three Pokemon are guardians of separate elemental spheres. Kyogre is for the Hydrosphere, Groudon is for the Lithosphere, and Rayquaza is for the Atmosphere. And it seems that these three Pokemon are based off of creatures from Hebrew myths. Kyogre is Leviathan, Groudon is Behemoth, and Rayquaza is Ziz. So these three Pokemon are, uh, you know, come from the Bible, basically. So Kyogre is a whale-like Pokemon. It is said to widen the seas by a large margin by taking a swim. It supposedly has control over water and the rain. It is hailed as a savior for quenching areas of the world plagued by drought. And it lives deep in the ocean. And I actually, I don't have a Kyogre card, so I looked one up online, and the card said that it is said to have widened the seas by causing downpours. It had been asleep in a marine trench. So Kyogre lives in a marine trench. And then Leviathan is basically a primordial sea serpent. Psalms 74.14 says that it is a, mul- a multi-headed sea serpent that is killed by God and given as food to the Hebrews in the wilderness. Isaiah 27.1 says that it is a serpent and a symbol of Israel's enemies who will be slain by God. Uh, Job 41 says that it is a sea monster and a symbol of God's power of creation. It is also said that Leviathan and Behemoth would get into an apocalyptic battle, which is prominent in Jewish eschatology. And if you don't know, eschatology is basically uh, the study of the end times. And so basically this apocalyptic battle between Leviathan and Behemoth is said to be, you know, looming. And that's where this battle between Groudon and Kyogre originates from. And the body and the eyes of Leviathan have great illuminating power, similar, similarly to Kyogre. Supposedly its abode is the Mediterranean Sea. And despite its size, it is afraid of a small worm called the Kilbit. And Kabbalistic literature suggests that Leviathan is actually Satan and that his wife is uh, Lilith. And then Groudon. Groudon is basically a giant red dinosaur-like creature that is covered in red plates of thick skin. It has the ability to expand continents. It can summon intense droughts and can cause volcanic eruptions. Uh, it, is, it evaporates water and it, its eruptions create land. And it is said to sleep underground in large magma chambers. 
And then to compare this to Behemoth, Behemoth is basically a giant ox-like beast with bones as hard as bronze and limbs as firm as rods of iron. And it is mentioned in Job 40, 15 through 24. It is said to be the, as it has a tail that is the size of a cedar tree. Some say that Behemoth was God's first creation. It's also a land monster just like Groudon. And according to the ancient works, Behemoth will be served at the Messianic Banquet. And to finish up with this weather trio, Rayquaza is a large green serpentine flying dragon creature. It can manipulate the weather. Rayquaza has the ability to soothe the other members of the weather trio. And it is said to have lived for millions of years in the ozone layer where it feeds on water and other particles. And it's rarely seen, but when it is seen, it looks like a a meteor. And then to compare Rayquaza to Ziz, Ziz is an enormous griffin-like bird creature. It, uh, It is as big as Leviathan. When its feet are on earth, its head reaches the sky. So it's incredibly large, incredibly long and tall. Its wingspan can block out the sun, and it was created to protect birds. And it is also said to be served at the Messianic Banquet. So that's just kind of an overview of uh, the legendary Pokemon from the first three regions, plus Ninetales. I definitely would like to do more episodes uh, about Pokemon and their mythological creatures in the future. Not exactly sure when that's going to happen, but I'll cover more legendary Pokemon. But I also think that the the non-legendary Pokemon have extremely interesting backgrounds too. So I'll pick and choose which ones I'm going to cover. I'll probably do about three, maybe four episodes intermittently. Not exactly sure when those will occur. I'll probably take a few weeks off at least before I do another one. Uh, of course, next up, next week I'll have a different episode, but I'll take weeks off before I do another Pokemon episode. So that's all for today's show. There will be more Pokemon episodes in the future, but until then, gather some Pokeballs, head out into the field, and maybe you'll get lucky. Beast Lore is available on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow me on social media at USU Folklord on Twitter and at Archaic Futurism on Instagram. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.